Welcome to the 66th episode of the New Ventures Podcast. I am your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. In this podcast series, along with my co-host, Professor Jaydeep Prabhu, I explore the links between climate change and food. Hi, I'm Jaydeep Prabhu. I'm delighted to be doing this podcast with Sanjoy. I am a professor of marketing at Cambridge Judge Business School with a particular interest in frugal innovation, how to do more and better with less. What's a meal without something to wash it down with? In this special episode, we talk about my favorite topic, sustainable alcohol. Our guest for today is David Gates, the CEO of Direct Wines, an international independent wine merchant. David is also a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. David, you've had a long career in the beverage sector. Can you tell us a bit about your journey? Yes. My career in beverages actually started with mineral water. So um, after leaving university, actually, my first job was working for a below-the-line agency, and my client was Perrier Water. So after a couple of years with Perrier, I then moved agency, and my client was actually Harp Lager. So I went from water to beer, and then after that, I joined Diageo in 1991 in London in their central marketing team, where I moved to Spirits. So it was a steady progression in terms of the strength of alcohol. And um, after a few years there, I was actually transferred to Brazil. I spent a glorious four and a half years in Brazil looking after Diageo's Scotch whiskey portfolio in a marketing job. And then from Brazil, I moved to the Netherlands, uh, where I was working as part of the global Johnny Walker team. That was an, an incredibly exciting time. It was when we launched a groundbreaking piece of um, advertising for, for that brand called Keep Walking. And after that, I then continued in a number of international roles. I worked in Japan for three years. I was in Singapore for three years, doing a, a kind of pan-regional role for Diageo, again, in marketing um, across the Asia-Pacific region. Before moving back to the Netherlands, actually, where I spent another nine years um, in kind of senior marketing roles. I was looking after the, the global category of whiskey, Diageo, global brand director for Johnny Walker. And then my final job was at Diageo, anyway, was looking after Diageo's futures division, which was really looking at how the future of the alcohol industry might be affected by all the disruptors. And that could be kind of disruption in terms of drinks in bottles. It could be disruption in terms of tech to the whole of the kind of alcohol industry. And, and then it was looking at adjacent categories, you know, things like kind of cannabis and CBD and what that might do to the whole of alcohol. So a long, long time at Diageo. I then had a stint at Brewdog, setting up their spirits division or helping kind of reformulate it before I joined Direct Wines. So I've been at Direct Wines now for about three and a half years. I'm CEO of the company. It's a family-owned business and we're the largest direct-to-consumer wine business, we think anyway, in the world with representation in the UK, the US, Australia, New Zealand, and we have uh, franchise operations in Hong Kong and Taiwan. David, obviously, Direct Wines is a global footprint, which you already mentioned. It has a fascinating history, right? Yeah, it's, it's a lovely history. The company was founded 53 years ago 
by Tony Lathwaite. Tony kind of left university, went down to France, was working down there, and he ended up kind of bringing back cases of wine from the Bordeaux region to the UK. Around that time, there was quite a lot of falsification kind of going on in terms of people bottling bulk wine from Spain, probably from parts of France, but passing it off as Bordeaux. And Tony was kind of outraged by that. And he was bringing legitimate product and selling it by the case. And through kind of word of mouth, he began to build a small business. He then wrote a letter to the Sunday Times editor, Harold Evans, about this kind of the dodgy dealings that were going on in parts of the wine trade at that time. And that letter extraordinarily kind of got, it got published. And then there was this huge influx of letters to Tony saying, well, if you're bringing in this wine and it's legitimate and I can trust you, I'd like to buy from you as well. And that was the kind of start of the creation of the Sunday Times Wine Club, which is kind of one of the brands we still have today, 50 years on. And really from that, the you know, the business grew and grew and still family owned. So it's Tony and Barbara's sons now, uh, Henry, Will and Tom, who um, are navigating and steering the ship from a board perspective. But the ethos of the company has always been about kind of family values. So generally speaking, we look to buy from smaller, independent, family-owned wineries. You know, we're still doing business with people that Tony started buying wine from you know, 53 years ago. And it may not be the original people that he was buying from, but quite often it's either the children or the grandchildren of those people. So very, very long relationships. But those family values are really important to us. And it's things like um, we measure the fact that we pay all of our suppliers on time. Because when you're dealing with small companies, family businesses, that really matters. We're a small family business. It matters to us as well that we do that. And so there's a really kind of strong ethical moral compass to the business, which is, I guess, founded in those family values, founded in the values of kind of Tony and Barbara in particular. But the business has kind of grown and grown. Um, you know, today, we have 700,000 customers. Our revenue is about £350 million across those markets that I've already previously mentioned. And in terms of kind of the value set, we have this expression, it's an internal expression, which is doing things beautifully. And I guess the best way to kind of paraphrase it um, or to kind of decode it is it's about doing things the right way. It's about kind of making the right choice, kind of hope that we treat people the way that we would like to be treated ourselves. And that extends in, in terms of where we're, we're going to take this conversation today in terms of sustainability is we've only got one planet, we all share it, and we all have a responsibility to try and do the right thing to try and protect that planet. That's a great segue, David. I know you're passionate about drinks and the drinks industry but I know you're also passionate about sustainability. So can you tell us a bit about sustainability at Direct Wines? Yeah, the first thing to say is some businesses, they kind of find one of their challenges is leadership. And, and that leaders, you kind of have this conflict of needing to make profit, but also wanting to do the right thing from a sustainability perspective. And actually, right from the very top, all of our board are committed to both. And they're both important. At the time, Henry Lathwaite, who was, who was our chairman at the time, it's, it's now his brother Tom, there was this incredible 
thing that he said that, that kind of really struck me, which is, by the way, Henry's Henry's a winemaker as well himself um, in Marlowe in Buckinghamshire in England. He makes this award-winning, sparkling English wine called Harrow and Hope. And he's just talking about his children and very viscerally, he was like, we don't have a choice here. We have to do the right thing because when I look at my children, I want them to have a kind of prosperous, healthy planet to grow up in. And we'll, I'm sure we'll all have seen or read words like that, but it was kind of like visceral, it was real, it's meaningful. And so actually I think that commitment from our shareholders, uh, particularly Henry, Will and Tom, to sustainability is really important because it means that when there are choices, and there are about whether you pay X or Y, because quite often still at the moment, taking the kind of sustainable option may end up kind of costing you a little bit more or it may be harder or it may be more challenging. But actually having that kind of real commitment from the top, and, and I share that commitment, I think creates a platform for everybody else and it's a very, very clear piece of communication to everybody else about how we want to operate. So I think there's a piece around kind of setting the tone from the top and really leading. But then for us, it's we've got a five a five point plan. You know, summarising it, the first one is to emit less carbon. So we've set ourselves a target that by 2030 we want to halve our emissions, our carbon emissions for one, two, and three A scopes because. Yeah, that feels meaningful, but real and achievable. So that's part one, emit less. The second one is to store carbon. The third one is to protect the vineyards. So kind of being really kind of specific about protecting the vineyards that both we own, but also from the people that we're buying from. Fourthly, to rescue biodiversity. And lastly, fifthly, is to, to actually create great climate leaders within our own business. That might feel small, but for us, we thought it was really important to kind of train our staff. We've run group-wide, action-based educational initiatives to create kind of awareness of sustainability and the role that everybody can play. Because to a certain extent, you know, there are things that we can do as kind of business leaders within this sphere, but actually having everybody understand the role that they can play also felt important. So those are the kind of five big, big areas. And we've kind of got initiatives against each of those, both for ourselves and for our supplier base in terms of kind of trying to make a really significant impact. Obviously, we will understand these initiatives in detail during the course of this conversation. But one thing that I wanted to start off is to the millions of wine lovers across the world, people are worried about the impact of climate change on the wine industry. Are you already seeing anything? Absolutely, we are. You know, we've been subjected to heat waves, to droughts, to hailstones, to frost, to fires. It's real and it's now and it, it's been a factor, you know, certainly over the last kind of decade, but it, it's increasingly creating kind of issues throughout the industry. If I give you an example, you know, in France, let's take France as an example. In 2021, you know, there was a spring heat wave that was followed by a prolonged period of frost. And that destroyed a significant number of vines. And that's really unusual. The heat wave first, which basically means that you can, you you kind of get blossoming, you, you accelerate the process, and then the frost kills everything. So that was a nightmare. It was then followed by heavy rainfall, 
and that heavy rainfall caused the spread of diseases such as mildew and that destroys vast kind of quantities of plants in the US and in Australia, you would have probably seen some of the kind of the turmoil that's been created by the fires, the wildfires that have affected kind of in particular kind of California. And I mean, that has absolutely decimated kind of some of those wineries and some of the vineyards in that area. And you know, what we've seen is that there's been a fivefold increase in burnt areas from kind of 1972 to 2018, five times as many wildfires during that process. And obviously that kind of both destroys crop, but actually even if there isn't destruction of the, your own vineyards, sometimes you can get smoke taint as you know the smoke from all of those fires floats across other vineyards and across kind of other areas that can lead to kind of smoke taint, which again, can affect the quality of the wines, because obviously you don't want to have that kind of flavour dimension in your wines. Giving you another example from kind of Australia, Australia faced a kind of $20 million hit in grape production in the Adelaide Hills region alone in 2019 to 2020. So you can see in Europe, it's a factor in the US and Australia as a factor, in even Germany, which you might kind of think, well, you know, Germany, you know, kind of slightly further north, maybe, maybe they're not kind of as impacted. But 70% of um, all soil in, in German vineyards has experienced prolonged drought due to over 400 millimetre decrease in the usual summer precipitation. So the fact that it's raining less is kind of creating real issues in terms of kind of soil health. And therefore, you need to kind of really consider how you mitigate against that in terms of your kind of um, your planting regime, your your pruning regime, your cover crops, in, in terms of all of the ways that you look after the vineyards. Yeah, David, you know, that's all very scary, in fact, to hear all that, but very real. What about the other way around? What's the impact on the environment of the industry in terms of emissions, water, etc.? What are the big impacts? Well, I mean, interestingly, and it's and, and some people kind of find it surprising. Actually, one of the biggest impacts is, um, or, or sorry, one of the biggest kind of causes um, is is actually less about the production of the of the wines themselves, but more about the bottling and the transportation of the bottles. So, in terms of kind of our impacts, you know, there's energy. We have kind of big energy consumption in packaging and, and transportation. And that is our number one issue. One of the things that we did as we set off on our kind of sustainability plan was we, we worked with an external company to say, well, look, can you help us measure all of the kind of carbon impact that we have, that our suppliers have, and just kind of give us a report in terms of where do we need to focus our energy? Where do we need to focus that's going to have the biggest impact? We've got this huge big matrix with kind of traffic lights in terms of looking at kind of all of the factors across the entire supply chain so that we can understand where all the kind of the biggest issues are in terms of, you know, where we're creating problems. And as I said earlier, you know, the biggest issue really is in the energy consumption in our kind of packaging and transportation. Obviously, also within that, kind of in our own operations, and that in a way, that's kind of slightly easier. We're now using 100% renewable sourced energies. We're moving all of our kind of transportation to electric vehicles. And we've already seen since we kind of kicked off that initiative, a kind of 26% decrease in terms of kind of our, our energy. 
usage. So energy is one. Water is obviously kind of another kind of key factor. We need water to kind of irrigate the vineyards. We obviously create kind of some effluent from the wineries. Then, of course, kind of waste. And actually, we're not so bad there. Kind of recycling rates on on our vineyards is pretty good. People are very, very kind of conscious about trying to minimise waste and and where possible to either treat it or reuse it or use it as kind of animal feed or whatever it, it might be. And in terms of packaging, recycling rates of bottles is pretty good um, in some places. And again, I mean, it's hard to generalise, but the Northern Hemisphere, and certainly within Europe in particular, recycling rates are pretty good. Where you have kind of curbside collection, recycling rates of glass is excellent. But again, they are looking at alternative formats, but the recycling ability of, of that kind of varies, again, country by country. And then lastly, in terms of kind of our impact, kind of biodiversity. So vineyards historically have been pretty monoculture, and that lack of diversity is an issue, and it's an issue that we're collectively seeking to kind of really address. And so there's a shift to regenerative viticulture, more emphasis now on cover crops, including nitrogen-fixing legumes. And look, one of the things we're doing is we're actively looking to support vineyards undertaking action for kind of biodiversity protection. In fact, I've got a call later on this week where we're talking to a large number of our suppliers about what they can do in terms of biodiversity. And we're using some of our own vineyards to kind of try and learn ourselves and kind of then share that learning with others. I think one of the things actually worth saying about sustainability is you know, from our, our perspective, we've got some of the answers, but we're a long way from having all of them. And our view is that we want to learn from others and we want to share our, our learning. And actually, I, I think as an industry, you know, this is not something where you look for competitive advantage because the more that we can all help each other along the sustainability kind of journey, everyone benefits. And it's a little bit like I think when Mercedes, I think they were the first company to invent the the seatbelt and understanding the benefit that it would have for everybody in a motor car. I think they, they shared the technology for free so that everybody would benefit from that. This is one where we should all be helping each other because we all win if we can do something about it. David, one of the things that you're going to do is to adapt to climate change. You talked about changing places where vines are located, pruning and so on and so forth. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what vineyards are doing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, there are many, many ways in which people are having to adapt. Um, So why don't we go back to France as an example? So kind of France historically has been bound by pretty strict regulations on kind of grape varieties that you could grow there. And so they've responded to climate change by permitting seven additional varieties um, deviating from their, their traditional norms. What you see a lot of people doing is... As the temperatures get hotter, they're effectively changing the type of grapes that they grow. So they're they're growing varietals that maybe have thicker skins that are, are more resilient to the kind of hotter temperatures. And so what you're seeing is kind of maybe varietals that that used to just kind of be in the south of France and southern Spain, they're actually um, migrating kind of further north in terms of those type of varietals. So that you know that's one way. There's also kind of planting techniques, so um, modifying the vineyard density, introducing shade through tree planting. There are some places where they're planting trees or they're, or they're kind of putting up effectively netting to try and provide some form of shelter. 
treating and reusing wastewater would be um, another way. Genetically modifying crops with higher tolerance thresholds is, is something else that's kind of going on. If I give you an example from kind of some of our, our suppliers, there's a Chateau Guillaume de Montjustin, who are, they're incorporating soil grassing in the creation of a, of a protective mulch. So mulch, they lay on top of the soil. And what that does is that shields the soil somewhat from the sun. And that mitigates kind of some of the evaporation that you, you might otherwise be subjected to in those hotter temperatures. That's an example. In terms of other things, kind of people are moving to kind of higher altitude. So kind of trying to escape some of that more extreme heat by moving kind of to slopes at higher altitude. I suppose the other kind of key thing is about kind of water retention and, and really looking at how they can adapt irrigation to maximise the use of the water and, and reduce as much as possible kind of evaporation. Those are just kind of some of the examples. David, you touched on some of this before, but I wonder if you could go into a bit more detail about your emission reduction strategies and mitigation. Can you tell us about the various steps you've taken on that front? Yeah, of course. The first one is packaging. And this is interesting because actually consumers generally kind of think of glass bottles as being great because you can recycle them. And, and, and they're right, you can. However, when we looked at it, that is still our biggest kind of issue. And particularly if you are transporting kind of heavy wine bottles from, let's say you're in Europe and you're transporting wine from Australia or your or Chile or Argentina or even the US, you know, that's putting a lot of kind of quite heavy cargo on a boat and then shipping it all the way into the UK or Europe. For us, what we're doing with that is, I mean, the, the first thing that we're doing is actually just trying to reduce the amount of bottles that we ship over. So what we're doing is we are increasing the amount of bulk wine that we ship. So we ship it in bulk and then we bottle locally. And we've already doubled the amount of wine that we're shipping in bulk from those kind of faraway countries. The second thing we're doing is looking to reduce the weight of those bottles. So the average bottle weight in the sector is about 550 grams for a 750 milliliter bottle of still wine. We're committed to reducing our average bottle to 420 grams. That makes a difference. We're also innovating. There's this amazing piece of innovation that we're really excited about. It's called The Wine is Called Without. It uses 100% recycled glass, which is um, called wild glass, excitingly. It's pretty rare, actually. There are only two manufacturers in Europe that are making 100% uh, recycled glass. That, again, is another example of how we can have a kind of positive impact because the kind of carbon emissions from using 100% recycled as opposed to partially recycled or virgin glass is really quite significant. And then kind of finally within that is looking at alternative formats. So bag in box is has a significantly kind of lower level of carbon emissions than, than glass bottles would. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is to increase the amount of wine that we sell in boxes. And we I think we sold four hundred and fifty percent more wine bag in box from a small base last year. But I suppose the poster child region for consumption of wines um, in bag and box is Scandinavia, where something like 70% of all, all of their wine is, is sold in that format. And obviously that has a really, really significant impact in terms of being able or will have in terms of reducing the amount of the emissions. 
our focus is really, really on our packaging. That feels like that's the it will have by far and away the biggest impact in terms of reducing our carbon emissions. And so that's where we are prioritizing the majority of our effort. That's really fascinating, David. You know, we haven't talked about consumers. You sort of touched on it just now when you mentioned Scandinavia. Have we arrived at an age of the conscious consumer in the alcohol industry? <laughs> it's Chaiji uh, is a really, really good question. And I think if I can sit on the fence slightly on this, I mean, I think the answer is yes and no. So there are a lot of consumers who care so passionately that they will make choices on the basis of sustainability. Is it organic? Is it, you know, what's the format? But actually, certainly in our, I mean, our, our, our customer base is slightly older. It's kind of um, generally kind of over 35, 35 plus. And in the research that we've done with those consumer groups, yes, they do really care about the environment, they care about sustainability, but actually when they're having a drink at the end of the day, they don't really want to be reminded about existential threats. I mean, certainly in the research that we've done is that if, if you lead with sustainability as your primary message in kind of marketing communication, it's it's a lot less effective than if you lead with something that talks about the the quality of the, the product, the history and the heritage and of the winemaking and the winemaker's story, and then you close with the sustainability kind of angle or the sustainability story behind it. So for us, it is important, but it's not the lead piece of communication because people want to know that this is a brilliant quality amazing tasting wine first and then if there is kind of sustainability as, as a part of that story then that just confirms their choice but certainly in the research that we've done if you lead with that sustainability first it, it's less impactful and less effective than driving choice but it is a generational issue so we're seeing a direction of travel in favor of more sustainable options Absolutely. I think you see that with younger consumers tend to be more conscious of that. That having been said, they're also more price conscious as well. I think sometimes what people say and what they do are not necessarily the same. Yeah, they'll claim to be kind of very, very conscious, but actually when it comes to it, they'll take what's cheapest and, and, and often that yeah, that might be mass produced and it and it may be less sustainable. So I still think we've got a way to go, if I'm honest. Particularly in our industry, you know, you're talking about a natural product. It's there's been around for millennia. I think from a kind of a perception perspective, it's not seen as kind of being one of the the primary industries that's kind of causing problems. Because you know, you you look at kind of oil and gas, and you look at industries that are clearly kind of churning out kind of pollutants into the atmosphere, and then you look at our industry, and you look at kind of these beautiful green bushes kind of and grapes on vines. And so generally speaking, I think there is less awareness, less consciousness in the drinks category than, than you might have in other more industrialized industries. But David, to be truly sustainable, shouldn't we be all drinking local? Well, I think in some places, and certainly in terms of wine, actually, that is what people do. You know, if you go to, for example, Piemonte, in kind of northern Italy, and you happen to be 
drinking wine from Tuscany, they would think that that was a heresy. You know, going beyond kind of 20 miles of your own area, it kind of feels like something that you wouldn't need to do or want to do. Actually, in wine-producing countries, actually, they are very localised. Australia, for us, about 85% of the wines that we sell in Australia are Australian wine. So they are pretty local consumption. But for those of us, I'm speaking to you today from Cambridge in England, and yeah, the quality of English sparkling wine is excellent now and getting better all the time. But actually, if you want to drink really good red wine, you're going to want to bring it from, well, Piemonte, as I've just talked about, or Burgundy or Bordeaux. Or You don't necessarily have the luxury to do that. The other thing I suppose that we would say is um, part of the joy of life is about the variety of tastes, the variety of flavours, and being able to taste these extraordinarily different wines from the different regions of the world. Let's look at it this way, if I may, Sanjoy. You can travel all around the world without getting on a plane by just deciding which particular type of wine you might put in your glass. And what a wonderful evening it will be. David, I want our audience to take away a few things. First of all, climate change is already affecting the wine industry. I think the important thing that you made about reducing emissions, and the solution doesn't really lie in the energy consumption in your production process, but in your transportation and packaging process. So looking at the solution from analyzing the problem in the supply chain, I thought that was a really important point that you made. The other point that you made about you know, water conservation, obviously water is a big input to the industry, but in the way you described it, the ways you're conserving water in the hotter temperatures is actually having in what we call in climate world a cross-cutting effect. That is, it helps both mitigation and adaptation. Obviously, in the final point that you made about that in order to sell sustainability, which is important, you will have to lead with, with the messaging that it's a great product, it suits your lifestyle and suits your need, and by the way, it's also sustainable. You know, those are really four important things that I'm taking away from this conversation. It's been wonderful. Excellent summary, Sanjoy, and thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it as well. Do you have any questions for your host? Do you know, I think the one question I'm often faced with when I'm talking to people about this is it can feel quite gloomy, can't it? Um, and it can feel like quite an insurmountable challenge at times. And I look, I'm naturally a glass half full character, as you'd expect as somebody who's worked in the drinks industry most of their life. What gives you hope? That's a wonderful question to, to end on, David. Actually, I'm equally optimistic and positive. Uh, like you, I believe in particularly our young people, which is why I asked you about the generational question. And sitting as I do in a university, I'm exposed to a lot of young people. Many of them are very, very passionate about climate change issues. They don't just pay it lip service. They put their money where their mouth is in the sense that they pursue careers, uh, they pick up skills, they start companies or they work for companies where sustainability is an issue. We're seeing just how important sustainability is in the curriculum now. We bring it into practically every aspect of what we teach in a business school. And that demand is coming from our students as well as from our employers. So my feeling is that there is a lot of awareness about the nature of the problem, the enormity of the problem. There are increasingly toolkits and there's knowledge about what to do about it. 
and our students are working together sometimes to create new companies that will address these problems, to innovating, to come up with better solutions to these problems. So that's what gives me hope and a sense of optimism. That's fantastic. And you, Sanjoy? We had a guest, Sonali, who is an expert on the new food movement, alternative protein. She says it simply, innovation is hope. Yeah, that's lovely. I suppose throughout history, innovation has, has dealt with and helped us deal with you know, some of those threats that felt existential at the time. And if people want to get in touch with you to learn about sustainability or to buy a bottle of wine, how should they? LinkedIn is probably the best. So I'm at David Gates at, um, on LinkedIn. You'll be able to find me there. And if you would like to buy wine from us in the UK or the US or Australia, New Zealand, um, look up Lathwaite's. And if you do put that in your search engine, you'll be able to find us there. And with that, it's been wonderful hosting you, David. And for all of us at New Ventures Podcast, a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. Thank you so much, David. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas, everyone. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. And you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.